The children are dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. Follow along. 2 Timothy chapter 2. One of, the, one of the types of movies that I enjoy watching are war movies, especially movies centered around World War II. And I had the privilege of borrowing Wendell's um, copy of Band of Brothers. I don't know if any of you have seen that. And one of the things that oftentimes in movies that center on um, historical issues on the war is they'll spend a fair amount of time in training, in boot camp. Um, and the reason for that is because the military understands that drilling and re-drilling and training and retraining um, things into the soldiers are going to be essential for them to be effective in the field, effective in combat. I suspect Matthew Braun, who is going off to boot camp here in, what, two months? They will be drilling and re-drilling and re-re-drilling um, things into you. How to use your weapon, how to use your gear, how to use your um, armor. Because it's important for soldiers in, in combat to know how to use their equipment. And Paul, writing from prison in Rome, um, now shifts in, in 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, after the introduction from 1.3 to 2.14, there's been an extended um, treatment encouraging Timothy to persevere. Persevere. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be afraid, Timothy. Um, be willing to suffer, Timothy. Persevere. And it ended last week in the crescendo, citing that early church doctrinal statement or hymn, it's showing the necessity that Timothy and all of us persevere. Well, now Paul begins a new section, a new, a new area of the book. I mean, they're all intertwined. You'll see themes overlapping. But from 2.14 all the way to 3.9, Paul starts to deal with the problem of false teaching in the church, which is why I pick up this war mentality. Um, Paul has already used the illustration in chapter 2 where he tells Timothy, like a soldier... Share in suffering, verse 3, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So Paul's introduced the metaphor. I will just continue it a little bit. And so Paul, knowing that a war is on, being sidelined um, in jail, gives Timothy instructions on how to, how to protect the church. That's this whole new section is on. And the verses we're going to look at today, verses 14 to 19, really focus on the use of and the protection and the preservation of Paul's primary weapon, the Word of God. Interestingly enough, it's also his med kit. It's also his armor. But we're going to look at how to handle the Word of God, especially in, in face of the false teachers and the false teachings that will creep into the church. So let's read our passage, 2 Timothy 2, 14-19. them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's 
firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. Let those the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. How to handle the word of truth. And in this passage, Paul gives Timothy four keys or four important principles to bear in mind as he gauges in spiritual warfare, as he deals with these false teachers. And remember, again, spiritual warfare is always the warfare about truth. I've said this before, but we can watch too many movies or we can read some questionable books and get the impression that spiritual warfare is about, you know, um, prayer walks around the community. Prayer walks around the community are great. And we can think, you know, spiritual warfare is about exorcisms and stuff. And, and in the New Testament, there certainly are some things that we would probably have to call exorcisms. But spiritual warfare is about truth. It's always about truth. Always has been. The battle in the garden. Did God really say? Right? It's as simple and as subtle and as pernicious as that. It's, it's the battle for truth. Paul says that clearly in 2 Corinthians 10. We fight to take every thought captive to Christ. And it's the enemy's design to pervert, to twist, to corrupt God's truth and thereby weaken his people and damn the world. And so we're fighting, we're struggling over truth. And so it makes sense why Paul would focus on how to handle the word. So we're going to dive in now. Our first point, verse 14, teach the word with authority. Teach the word with authority. You see that in verse 14 twice. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So he wants him to remind them of something, and he wants to charge them before God about something. And here we're seeing the positive and negative aspect of teaching. On the one hand, Paul wants him, and this is a, a progressive, present, active verb, be reminding them, continually remind them of these things. These things, of course, what's been previously in the letter. If up to this point you've wondered, well, Paul's given Timothy an awful lot of personal instruction, but is it really legitimate for us to apply that to ourselves? Here is our warrant for that. The things that Paul has just spent the last chapter and a half teaching, he says he wants Timothy to remind them of these things, to be reminding them of these things. It's, it's an active, continuous process. Now, who's the them? you got two possible candidates, either the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was likely stationed, or we're still talking about the, the men that Timothy is supposed to pass on the truth to. Go back to verse 2. Um, verses 1 and 2 really set up what follows in chapter 2 and 3. The first verse, be strengthened by the grace that is in the Lord Jesus, is what we've just seen over the last few weeks. How to persevere by taking strength in Christ. How to not be ashamed by, by being empowered and strengthened by the gospel and faith. But verse 2 really sets up in many senses the themes for verse 14 all the way to 3.9, which is, and what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, in trust to faithful men who will, be able, who will be able to teach others also. So the them of verse 14 is either reaching back to verse 2 and remind these men that you're entrusting the word to, or it could be the church at large, but I certainly hope we all want to be found faithful. So either way, it's us. 
It's us. Paul wants Timothy to remind us. The word is to remind us of these things. The things we've been reading and studying in the last few weeks, it is indeed God's desire for us to be reminded of. And, and how often is what we need is not new truth, but to be reminded of truth we already know. Our men's group is going through Deuteronomy. I know small groups went through Deuteronomy. And the repetition in the book is, is amazing. And I know how many times in our group we'd say, look, are these Israelites, do they not get it? No, they didn't, and neither do we. Neither do we. Neither do you. Neither do I. We need to hear it again and again and again and again. And so a, a tremendous emphasis in the teaching ministry of the church is reminding, reminder. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, so often the power of sin is not to make God's people raise their fist at God and say no. So often sin's power is simply to get us to forget what we already know. It's far easier to believe a lie if you're forgetting the truth. And, and so we need to be reminded. And you can see that theme in Scripture over and over, reminding others of the truth. Um, so often that the blessing that you can be to a brother or sister is just remind them of what they already know. Remind them of truth. We need it every day. So that's positively what Timothy's to do. Negatively, he says it this way, charge them to avoid literally word fights. Apparently, it's a word Paul invented. Paul likes to invent words. This is one of those words he invents. Um, word fights. And it's not fights over words. The word logos, which means translated usually word, means a piece of speech. It's more like the notion of let me have a word with you. Um, it's, it's not the notion of a, a specific word, but sort of a chunk of speech. Um, teaching. In fact, in this section, the word logos or, or cognates of it show up four times. It's, it's a dominant theme in this passage. Um, in verse 14, don't quarrel about words. Verse 15, rightly handling the word of truth. And in verse 17, contrasted with the word of truth, literally, their words, their logos, will spread like gangrene. Verse 18, they have swerved from the truth, saying, and that's just the verbal form, lego, of logos, speaking, the resurrection has already happened. So contrasted in this passage is God's words and the word of these other teachers. Um, and so the challenge here about fighting over words is not fundamentally fighting over about a specific word, but it's fighting over teaching. It, it's in the context, it's Paul's words that back in verse 2, Timothy is to pass on the sound and healthy words that he heard. Pass them on to faithful men. He'll pass them on to other faithful men. There's this transmission of truth against the teaching or the words of these false teachers. And Paul tells Timothy to solemnly charge them not to be quarreling about those teachings and words, but to stay away from them. To stay away from them. In 1 Timothy 6.4, Paul says it this way, speaking of these false teachers and the danger of word fights. Because he says here, they do no good and they ruin the hearers. Listen to um, 1 Timothy 6.4-5, speaking of the one who brings false teaching. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived, depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth. So these are dangerous teachings. These are dangerous things that have crept into the church. 
And Paul wants Timothy to solemnly charge them, whether that's the faithful men in verse 2 that he's training up or whether it's the whole church, to, to not take part in it. To not take part in it. You know, sometimes we have a desire to like, want to get out there and, and read everything that's being written and even the books that are questionable and even the sketchy teachers and just to listen to them. The scripture would, on a whole, advise us just to avoid them. Just to avoid them. There's no profit. There is no value. There is no, nothing you will gain from it. And the danger is it will ruin its hearers. It will ruin its hearers. So teaching then... So to summarize this point, teach the word. That's the first, the first instruction Paul gives to Timothy. Teach the word with authority. And teaching involves teaching and reminding God's truth over and over. And it also involves avoiding error. Keeping yourself far from it. Not getting entangled in it. Secondly, Paul tells Timothy not just to teach the word with authority, but to handle the word with accuracy. This is that famous verse. I'm guessing most people who've come up through Awana have learned this. In fact, the, the acronym for Awana comes from this verse. Proved workmen need not be ashamed. Did I get that right? Approved workers are not ashamed. There we go. And it comes right out of this verse, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. Now that phrase, do your best, is kind of weak. Um, it's a word that means diligent, haste, and zeal, urgency. It's a Greek word, spude. And, and it just means front burner, all your energy and efforts, priority, zeal, being zealous. And, and it, Paul wants Timothy to do three things. First, to aim to be a zealous Servant of God. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And the notion of presenting yourself to God here is, is that there's going to be an inspection. There's going to be an inspection of Timothy's teaching, of Timothy's handling of the word of God. God cares what we do with his word. It can sometimes be fun to, to do different things that we want with the Bible. Um, it's never good. There's going to be an accounting. Jesus said every idle word would be accounted for. And here, he's telling Timothy, as he prepares to teach, as he deals with God's word, there will be a reckoning. You're going to have to give an account to God, and you want to conduct yourself and to study and to work in such a way that you will not feel shame. Aim to be a zealous servant of God and strive to become an unashamed workman unashamed workman. Now here's where a theme from the previous section gets picked up again, shame. Although this time it's very different. Before we've been considering the shame that one may be tempted to feel when expressing the gospel, expressing God's truth to a hostile culture and, and the fear of man and the fear of ridicule and the fear of, of looking foolish in others' eyes. This is a very different type of shame. This is a shame that one feels when one has failed the living God. This is the shame one feels when it comes time for you to open your mouth to speak and you don't know what the Bible says because, oh, let's just say you've been playing too much Xbox. I remember the first time I felt this. I was out in a witnessing trip at Word of Life and we were in a park and we came across a, uh, an assembly, no, no, a Jehovah Witness. And I was sort of the resident like apologist in our group. It was like me and like three or four girls and another guy and they sent for me 
Um, and I come over, and he started throwing out texts challenging the deity of Christ. And he'd throw out a text, and I'd give an answer, and he'd say, smile, and he'd throw out another text. And finally, he got to one I didn't have an answer for. And all I could say to him was, sir, I'm going to have to study and get back to you, but I, I, I think the Bible clearly teaches Jesus is God. And he gave me some patronizing thing. It's okay, my dear boy. Just keep working at it. You'll figure it out. And I went away furious at myself because I thought of the time I'd spent in the previous days watching TV, playing games, doing stuff. And here I was ashamed. I had a chance to speak God's truth, to, to contradict a false teacher, and I was silenced because I wasn't prepared to answer the question. So I went home and I studied, and I'm like, that's not going to happen again. Sadly, I've not met another um, Jehovah Witness who threw that text down, but if he's out there, I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, ready for him. And, and I'm not saying that just because you don't have an answer for something means you should feel ashamed. But if, if you're not making zeal in your life to handle God's word properly, if you're, if you're not carving out a fair amount of time to grow in your understanding of the word, then you may well have cause for shame. When a coworker asks you a question, when your husband, when your wife, when your children ask you something and you have no answer. God expects us to be diligent, right? And so the, the flip side of this is if we don't obey this command, we will, when we give an account to the Lord, feel shame before him. Not the shame that comes from fearing man, but the shame that comes from displeasing our Heavenly Father. And so we need to make great effort to grow and be growing in our understanding and our use of the word, which, which brings us to the, the third bit here, endeavor to deal faithfully with the text. Literally, and here's your blank, straight path. That's literally what it says. That's why some translations say to, to divide the word. The concept is making of a road or a path. And literally says, I want you to straight path the word of God. It's a beautiful word picture. It's not twisty. It's not convoluted. It's straight. When you're making a road and you're planning a road, you want to get, if possible, from point A to point B in a direct line, unless there's hazards in your way. And this is the same word that in the Septuagint is translated in, in Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Conversely, Peter, in, in 2 Peter, speaks of men who... Um, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. See, there's a way of dealing straight with God's word, giving it straight, laying it out straight and clearly, and there's a way of twisting. And, and if you've... If you've uh, not had your head in the sand, you have seen, you have heard, you have encountered people that want to do all sorts of magic tricks with the Bible. They don't want to deal with it straight. So there's higher criticism, and there's redaction criticism, and there's the whole postmodern words mean whatever I want them to mean thing, um, which is a very interesting thing to use words to articulate, um, that words can mean anything. That people always seem to miss that one. Um, expect The people who propound that words can mean anything expect to be understood rightly as they undermine language with words. Sorry, that the irony there just gets me every time. Irony, of course, being the opposite of wrinkly. Irony, wrinkly. Okay, sorry. <laughs> moving on, moving on. Um, and the word for straight is, is the word we get, it's the word orthos. 
connected with path. We get orthopedic from it, straighten your feet, or orthodoxy. And again, what, what, what Paul's looking back to is this, this, this passing of the baton. And keep in mind that in, in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, there were no printing presses. And so a lot of what was being passed was oral. The New Testament is being written. Um, there's evidence that Paul's aware of Luke and, and Peter's, we just read, is aware of, of Paul. But without a printing press and with the price of vellum and, and book materials, many churches might have one copy of the Scripture, and a lot of what was being taught was oral, verbal. And so Paul is very concerned about this passing of the baton, this transmission, and he wants Timothy to give it straight. He wants Timothy to cut a straight path with the truth. And it's important for us to do the same. And it's important for us to, to prize doing the same. One of the reasons why we spend so much time on Sunday mornings, and there are churches that have shorter sermons, and I know many of you have prayed that we would become one of those churches. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons why, why we, I have to spend as much time in teaching as I do is because I have to, the phrase I use is show the math. Do you guys remember in high school when the math teacher would give you a problem and you gave the answer, but you had to show your work, right? You know what I'm talking about? Because the math teacher was just as interested as to how I got the answer as what the answer was. And I say this over and over and over again, but none of you should care what I think. None of you should care what I think the answer is if I don't show you the math, if I don't show you why I think the Bible says it. Because at the end of the day, you're going to give an account not just for your handling of the word, but for what you believe, and it will not be sufficient for any one of you to say, well, Pastor Jeremy said, no, you, you need to do the math. You need to figure it out yourself. So a large part, part, wow, a large part of what we do on Sunday mornings is showing why we believe it means what it means. Because I want you to see, I want, I want to be held accountable that I'm dealing it straight. And if you think, eh, I, didn't, I don't see how you got that, you got to talk to me. You got to let me know. Because I'm not the authority. This is the authority. This is the authority. And we need to deal straight with it. We need... We need to not just make it mean whatever we want to mean. One of the more fanciful ones I've heard was of uh, somebody preaching Revelation 11.10 for a Christmas message. And he read, Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. See, it's a Christmas text. It goes on to say, Because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. See, if you just take the little chunk, it's a Christmas message. They're merry, and they're happy, and they're giving presents, and it has nothing to do with what it's saying. Nothing to do with what it's saying. We want to deal straight with God's Word. That's one of the reasons we have our Tough Ben classes. It's one of the reasons why it's important to read and reread and be in small groups. And We've got to deal faithfully with the Word. We've got to handle it with accuracy. Handle it with accuracy. Teach it with authority. Third, guard the Word from impurity. This is the largest section of our passage as Paul now turns from what Timothy should do positively to speaking of false teachers in the church. Verses 16 to 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so the first command is to avoid foolish and vile talk. So first, earlier in verse 14, he commands them not to participate themselves in this type of word quarreling. Here, avoidance. 
avoid this type of false teaching which contradicts what Paul has taught to Timothy. So again, we're not talking about the honest discussion that happens as people read their Bibles and you think it means that, I think it means this. No, no, this is about heterodoxy. This is about false teaching. Paul has put up their words against God's words. And this is what is to be avoided. Once we identify what you're teaching isn't what the Bible teaches, we should make some distance. Avoid foolish and vile talk. And he gives two reasons why. First, it leads into more and more ungodliness. Now, Paul is being very sarcastic here. The the word for leads is really make progress. They make much progress. You meet people that say they're progressive you go to churches or you hear of churches that are very progressive churches. They're very liberal in their thinking. We, have, we like to be progressive. And Paul says, they're progressive, all right. They're progressive in ungodliness. It's sarcasm. These teachers must have thought to some degree they had some inside scoop that they're progressive. And here Paul says, oh, yeah, they're making much progress. They're advancing, making great progress in ungodliness. Taking their own claims and turning it back on them. Oftentimes, the desire to be innovative is very dangerous when it comes to truth. So it leads into more and more ungodliness. Secondly, it spreads through the body like cancer. Um, The word translated gangrene here can mean any sort of um, disorder of the body of a sore that spreads, the the concept being flesh-eating, flesh-killing. And it's meant to be a revolting image. To make it even worse, literally, Um, what we translate as um, spreading like gangrene is literally going out to pasture. The concept is just how you let out sheep or goats into a field and they begin to eat all the grass. This this teaching is going to let into the body this this flesh-killing sickness and it will feast and pasture on the whole body. That's the picture. It will devour and consume and spread out among the whole body. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And one of the reasons why we exercise church discipline, one of the reasons why when, when someone's teaching, someone's life is so, so unchangeable, so fixed in this way that we ultimately would separate from someone is precisely because a little leaven leavens the lump. False teaching, sinful living, spreads among the body. And here, their words spread like cancer, devouring the body. Next, he actually names some of these false teachers to be aware of. So avoid foolish and vile talk and beware of false teachers. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying, The resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Now, Hymenaeus is almost certainly the same Hymenaeus who Paul disciplined in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, he tells Timothy, Hold faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Apparently, Hymenaeus has picked up a new sidekick now. Um, We don't know anything about Philetus. But Paul has already disciplined him, which which explains why he's willing to publicly call him out. He's already been publicly identified as a false teacher. And Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth. And what's so so terrible here is that word swerved is that they've lost their way. 
And this is a play on words back with the making straight paths in Scripture. We're supposed to make a straight path in God's Word. And here are these two false teachers who have lost their way in reference to the truth. What a sorry and sad state that is. We know at some point they heard the truth because they were taught by either Paul or Timothy. They're part of the church. They at one time had straight paths through God's word and somehow have turned aside, have gotten lost. You turn over to chapter 4 of, of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, sorry. And I was just talking about this with a friend of mine last week. We'll get to this in, in a few weeks. Verse 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And what's interesting, and our English Bibles don't bring out very clearly, is turn away is active verb tense. They, they do something. But the wander aside is passive. A literal rendering of this passage. They will turn away from listening to the truth and be wandered off into myths. The point is this. Once we let go of holding on to the truth firmly and fastly, once we take our eyes off of it, once we relax our grip and become willing to play fast and loose with the text, we get lost and you don't have the power within yourself to get found again. Once you let go of the truth, you're a sitting duck for all types of error, all types of false teaching, and, and you no longer are choosing which lies you're going to believe. And sadly, Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved, have become lost in regards to the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and upsetting the faith of some. Now, their denial, if you think of it, you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why is it such a big deal to deny, to say that the resurrection's already happened? Well, I want you to think about this, and this is why doctrine matters. What they're teaching, and there's evidence from 1 Corinthians 15 that there's a similar error at Corinth, is the notion that the resurrection of believers promised by Jesus had already occurred. It's some form of realized eschatology. And the notion is the resurrection of believers is a spiritual resurrection, and, and you're living in the kingdom power now. And, and you, you and I, we have all the blessings that the kingdom promises. I think there's probably a certain amount of prosperity teaching in this. Um, and it was appealing to people. The problem with that is this. The New Testament clearly teaches that our resurrected state will model or imitate the Lord's resurrected state. For as he is, we will be like him. We'll be, he's the firstborn, and he's, we're going to be conformed into his image. And so if our resurrection is spiritual only, then do the math. Jesus' resurrection was spiritual only. And we hear people like that today. Jesus is resurrected and is alive in my heart. It doesn't matter whether or not he rose from the grave. What matters is he's alive in my heart. He rose there. Um, the name for this type of teaching is called preterism. Um, and, and there are some people today who hold to this, the notion that um, all of the Re book of Revelation, all the things that were promised to happen, including the resurrection of believers, has already occurred. It's error. And Paul, disciplined out of the church, Hymenaeus, for teaching this. It, it cut at the gospel, it undercut one of the central claims of the gospel, that Jesus came in the flesh and he rose in the flesh, incorruptible, and that we one day will be transformed incorruptible as well. If you want to read more on this, uh, you can go read 1 
1 Corinthians 15, 12 and following, where Paul spends the rest of the chapter unpacking this and making it clear there is a physical resurrection. Jesus physically rose from the grave, and our bodies will be transformed. That was their error. They were denying gospel truths, and in doing so, they're upsetting the faith of some. They're upsetting the faith of some. Well, finally, not only is Timothy to teach the word of authority and handle the word with accuracy and guard the word from impurity, but he's to trust the word in adversity. He's to trust the word in adversity. Now, the word but's a little weak. Um, it's probably more like nevertheless. It's, there's a strong contrast being set up here. And, and the, the mentality is this. Paul has just gone off on these teachers. It, it must have been dismaying to Timothy. These are people he would have known. These are people who at one point he thought were Christians. Just as Jesus said, the, these wolves come from within. And maybe you know somebody who at one point was professing Christ and is now far from the truth, believing strange things. It can be discouraging. And as Paul outlines their denials, and Timothy must be aware of the traction that they're gaining, he brings in this word of confidence. Nevertheless, in spite of this, despite the best efforts of false teachers and the demons that stand behind them, God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So let's start by asking, what is God's firm foundation? I think most likely it's the truth. I think it's probably the deposit that Timothy's been guarding from chapter 1, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. After all, this whole section is about truth claims and words God's word versus their words. And so if, if the foundation here is scripture, is the truth, which is what I think it is, then it goes something like this. There's this assault on the truth. There's these words of the enemy, but God's foundation stands unmoved and firm. It's possible it refers to the church. That is possible as well. You think of something like Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's possible that's it. And the thought here is about the defection within the church. And, and if that's the case, then what Paul is saying is despite false teaching entering the church, despite numbers of professing believers going after it, the church is unshaken. Well, if it's the church, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, so the truth goes hand in hand. They, they overlap and dovetail either way. I, I tend to think it's God's word, it's the truth. It could be the church. Um, but either way, whether it's the truth people are holding on to or the people who are holding on to the truth, it's unshakable. And that's good news. In the face of a world where there's many people with other truth claims, there's many other people with their own strange teachings, God's church, God's truth is unmoved. Listen to the words of Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus said it this way, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot, not one iota of the law will pass away. It's firm, it's established. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Secondly, God's judgment is not idle. Now, this point may seem a little strange, and quite honestly, this was the biggest revelation in my study of this passage. Because what may not be clear 
is that Paul now quotes from Numbers. And I want you to turn back to Numbers chapter 16. This really is a fascinating account. And Paul, by quoting it, applies it to himself. I don't know how many of you remember the story of Korah's rebellion in Numbers. But we're going to read it. And I think as we read the story, you begin, begin to see how Paul might think this applies. Again, this is in response. This is the nevertheless in response to the growing membership, if you will, to the false teachers, the subscribers, the growing heretical faction. In Numbers 16, the, the assembly begins to rebel against Moses. We'll just start in verse 1. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and, one, and on the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men. And they rose against Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? In some sense, this is similar attached to the whole realized eschatology. We're all priests. Everyone in the congregation is holy. They don't need you, Moses, to tell them what God says. They can each have their own personal relationship with the Lord. Who are you, Moses? You've gone too far, Moses. Who are you to set yourself over God's people? Well, of course, Moses didn't set himself over God's people. God did. And you can picture Paul sitting in jail while these people who are teaching that the resurrection is, is occurred, and therefore, most likely, we should be living in health and wealth and prosperity, are gaining traction, and they're pointing to Paul in prison. Paul speaks of this in Philippians, that some indeed are emboldened by my imprisonment, meaning to add affliction to my chains. Saying, look, if Paul's gospel were the true gospel, God would be blessing him. He wouldn't be rotting in a Roman jail. All through Paul's ministry, he dealt with oppression, people opposing him, opposition. So it's not for nothing that he might feel a little sympathetic to Moses here with this uh, attempted coup d'etat. Well, let's see how it plays out. Verse Four, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all the company, In the morning, the Lord will show who is his. And if I got a little footnote here, jump down to the, the footnote if you've got it. The Septuagint, the Lord knows those who are his. That's the verse, that's the part of the verse Paul quotes. Not entirely clear, but it's, it's in a near direct quotation from the Septuagint. The Lord knows who, those who are his. Or the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near him. Then one of his chosen, the one whom he has chosen, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah, and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And the rebellion continues, and some of them don't even want to come out and listen to Moses talk. In verse 20, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Now look at this. This is, this is the amazing intercessory compassion of Moses, who our great 
high priest who's greater than Moses does even more. What does Moses do? You think if I was Moses and I just dealt with a 250 person strong leadership coup and the Lord said, okay, pack your bags, move outside of the camp, I'm going to blast him. But Moses falls on his face. He fell on their faces and said, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you will be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord said to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So it's not everybody now, it's just the three ringleaders. God says, back up, back up. Because the second half of this phrase, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, is, is, is sort of summarizing what's coming up here as Moses says, back away, back away, back away. Then Moses rose, verse 25, and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart, please away from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram stood out, came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men all die, as all, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord has created something new, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all their belongings to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. And Moses, and Paul quotes this. The Lord knows who are his. So, so what is Moses' response to the coup? What is Moses' response to them saying, You've gone too far. The Lord knows. The Lord will show who's his. And Paul here back in 2 Timothy, in the face of Paul's imprisonment, in the face of the rising traction of Hymenaeus and Philetus and their denial of the resurrection, nevertheless, nevertheless, Paul says, God's firm foundation stands. And it has this seal on it. The Lord knows who are his. Which is to say, the Lord isn't fooled. And the Lord will make it evident. Just as the Lord made it evident, who was for real and who was a pretender in number 16, the Lord will vindicate Paul. There's some confusion if, if his flock don't know, do I, do I believe Paul's teaching? Do I believe Hymenaeus' teaching? The Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. I'm not worried about it. You can put me in jail. I'm not worried about it. You can sideline me. God's church isn't going to falter. God's word isn't going to be corrupted and get lost. God's judgment is not idle. The Lord knows who are his. And with an implication here, he will reveal. It'll be made clear. Of course, there's also some comforting words for us believers in this as well. This, this echoes the words of Jesus in John 10, 14 to 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. The Lord knows who are his. And if you know the Lord, he knows you. He knows you. He's not going to forget you. He's, he's going to save you. And when judgment comes to devour the wicked, judgment, the Lord's wrath, will not fall on you. You read, read the book of Revelation and, and the, the fire that comes down to the earth and how the angel goes out and puts a seal on the forehead of God's people. When God comes in great judgment like the flood, he knows how to save the righteous. The Lord knows who are his. But there's a flip side to that truth. The Lord knows who are his. And Paul gets this from Moses telling everybody, get away, get away, back up from Korah and Dathan. And that is that God's people be known by their fruit. So on the one hand, we get the sort of predestinarian side, the election side. The Lord knows who are his. He knows who his sheep are. And those of us who claim to be his sheep need to depart from wickedness. You see, it's not for us to be, you know, getting a tattoo that says elect or something, you know. Rather, if you claim the name of the Lord, depart from wickedness. God's people will be known by their fruit. God's people will be known by their fruit. And you know the passage in Matthew 7, speaking of false teachers. Matthew 7, 15 to 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes, grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. In, in closing, I want to share one of the most encouraging reports I've heard. At a nearby college that does not teach straight paths through God's word, um, the following conversation is overheard by a friend of mine. And one of the professors at this nearby college was talking to a student, and they were complaining about how awful and how evil and how bad the people at Martinsdale were. Because, they said, because we're so nice and we're so loving and we're so gentle and we believe such terrible things because, of course, they look at our beliefs as terrible, as oppressive to women, as oppressive to, to people of different sexual orientations and the like. And that, when I heard that, it just brought a smile to my face. That was high praise. That was high praise, right? They should be offended at what we believe, right? The, the, the other team is going to be offended at what we believe. They shouldn't be offended at us. And so to hear, man, it is so deceptive of them because they're so kind and they're so nice and they're not jerks. They believe these terrible things. And I just took that, that made my month when I heard that. No, you have no idea. Like that, you couldn't pay, in my mind, this church a higher compliment than that. That was fantastic. Because... This saying then becomes true for, for us as a body, that, that God knows who are his. The Lord will separate out. I'm not worried about what they're teaching over there, just you know, toppling over the church. The Lord knows who are his. He'll, he'll vindicate the truth. But God's people need to abstain from wickedness. And, and I was hearing a testimony that the, those people from our church they'd interacted with were doing just that. And I was, I was proud of some of our students who attended said university. Um, <laughs> that will go unnamed. We'll go unnamed. Um, so as I call the worship team up for our final song, I just want to remind you of, of Paul's instructions to Timothy. There are instructions he wants repeated to us that we need to teach the word of authority. We need to handle the word with accuracy. We need to guard the word from impurity. And even in the face of adversity, even in the face of 
so many different beliefs and so many different points of view and all of that. Don't worry. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord will vindicate his truth. Just as he made it clear who his, who his chosen spokesman was, the truth will never ultimately be eclipsed by error. God will always make it clear. He just calls us in the meantime to abstain from wickedness if we call on his name. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word, and we pray that we would teach it, that we would handle it, that we would guard it, and that we would trust in it. We would not be discouraged by, by the false teaching that is around us, but that we would trust in you, trust that you will vindicate your truth, that you know who your people are, and that we would be zealous to abstain from evil and give glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.